It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And you can live stream us. If I get this right, it's LarryKudlowShow.com. I think that's right. You can live stream us throughout the country, all around the globe, throughout the solar system, and you'll know as much as I know. No, that's not right. You'll know much more than I know. So anyway, welcome back. We're broadcasting from Naples, Florida today. And um, we're all set up. I have to give a speech tonight to the Ave Maria University. And looking forward to it. See my pal Newt Gingrich, Ambassador Callista Gingrich, and a cast of thousands. So let's talk about um, let's talk about war and inflation. I'd love to say war and peace, but war and inflation would be uh, more to the point. We will have General Keene, General Jack Keene, on at the uh, top of the next hour, and he'll fill us in on the military story and the peace talk story. I don't know. You know, there's a part of me. I, I'm look. I don't know what I what I don't know about military uh, tactics and um, analysis is gigantic. I don't really know much of anything. But there is a part of me that thinks that at least as far as the Kiev story is concerned, that the Ukrainians are actually winning. Russians are bombing civilians and babies and maternity wards, and Putin's a war criminal, and it's a terrible story, but I think they basically control the West and they're coming up through the South. But the fact is the Kiev campaign's gone very badly. The convoy's broken up. The soldiers have gone off into the tree line. I don't know what's going to come next, but there is a part of me that suggests, you know what, the Russians may be losing at least that part of the battle. Will they win in the end? Perhaps so. We will see. Zelensky is a very courageous guy. My hat's off to him as always is. But here at home, Joe Biden's kind of up to his old tricks, and so is the Democratic Party. And it was interesting to me, you know, we had this very bad inflation report, 7.9%, 12 months ending in February. And um, Biden keeps telling us that it's all Vladimir Putin's fault, right? It's all his fault. It has nothing to do with Biden policies. And, of course, that's completely wrong. He's in total denial. Even some of his leading, not his, but some leading Democratic Party economists, like Larry Summers of Harvard and Jason Furman of Harvard, these are people that uh, worked for Barack Obama, Steve Ratner as well, are pounding him because he has to own the inflation problem, but he won't own the inflation problem. And although yesterday he did one good thing, he ended where I think he's starting to end Russia's special trade status, which means basically World Trade Organization principles will be thrown out the window. Tariffs on uh, Russian imports will go up. I'm a free trade guy. I don't like tariffs, but in this particular case, in a wartime setting, uh, we need to punish Putin, and we need to try to rob him of financing his great military machine. So I'm good with that. But Biden, you know, talking to the media yesterday morning, after he talks about putting higher tariffs on Russian imports, he then just goes off the rails, like he always does, and still makes the case that the 8% inflation problem 
$110 oil, $4.33 gasoline. It's all caused by Vladimir Putin. It's Putin's inflation. Wrong. It's Biden's inflation. It is Biden's inflation. And he'll never own it, I guess. But as he was talking yesterday, you could see the Pinocchios. The Pinocchios were, you know, one Pinocchio, two Pinocchios, three Pinocchios, four Pinocchios, and uh, the building up of the Pinocchios. Here's some facts. Can I just lay out some facts for this story? The Russians invaded in late February, and actually, that had no impact on the February consumer price report. It will show up in March, and on the 75 cent increase in gasoline that Biden keeps talking about and blaming Putin. You know, I, I'm okay with that part. That's exactly right. It will show up in March. Um, whether it's a one-time increase, we will see. But here's the thing. In December of 2020, the 12-month inflation rate, the last one from the Trump administration, was 2 percent. I think for the quarter in Q4 2020, Trump's last quarter, inflation was about 1.5 percent. Okay? Now, here's the problem. Starting in January 2021, gasoline is at $2.35. As last year progressed, by October it was $3.31. In November, which is when the Russian troops actually started massing on the Ukraine border, on their eastern border, gasoline went up a little bit, $3.41. This year's January, gasoline actually fell slightly, fell at 10 cents. Then it went up in February, and then, of course, March, it surged to $4.33. So here's my point. Yes, gasoline popped up about 75 cents. But before that, before Putin, before invasion, before anything, Gas prices had gone up about $1 over the prior year. That's a 40% increase. Biden will not talk about that, will not deal with that, will not face up to that. Okay? The same is true with the oil story, crude oil. In January 2021, oil prices um, were about $52 which is pretty much the average of where they were during all the Trump years when we had energy independence, when we encouraged the frackers to frack, when we encouraged the pipeliners to pipeline, when we removed regulatory obstacles such as NEPA permitting and endangered species and clean water. We didn't eliminate them. We just eased them to something more reasonable so business and commerce could go on, and particularly in America's oil and gas industry, which is one of our most important industries and the best oil and gas industry in the world. The cleanest fuel, and we were pumping up, you know, 13 and a half million barrels a day. So my point is pre-Putin, pre-Putin, $52 gas went from, went to $91 gas. Uh, Crude oil, sorry. 52 oil went to 91. 39 bucks is 75% gain. This is all pre-Putin, pre-invasion, pre-anything. So the Pinocchios grow for Joe Biden. 
Um, in terms of the consumer price index, as I said, it was about 2 percent at the last month of Trump's administration. It moved up to 7.5 percent in January and 7.9 percent in February. And it was across the board, across the board. In fact, if you had taken energy out of the CPI, so Putin, so Biden blames Putin for energy. But what about the rest of the CPI? You know, there's like 5,000 prices in the consumer price index. So take it out. Take energy completely out. That's like taking Putin out of the CPI. What you're left with is about a 6.5% inflation rate. So it went from 2 to 6.5%. Take Putin out, out of the CPI. And it just shows you uh, the falsehoods that Joe Biden continues to press upon the American people. And it's too bad, because this story is going to get worse before it gets better. Now, I'll run down just a couple points. Why did inflation go up? This is not hard. Number one, first and foremost, excessive federal spending financed by deficits. So we call it deficit spending. And that, in turn, was financed by the Federal Reserve, which bought the bonds and injected new cash into the economy at incredibly rapid rates. The money supply grew by 40 percent for the past two years. We're still growing the money supply at about 15 percent. Normally, it would be about 5, 6, or 7 percent. Commodity prices have taken off. That's a sign of inflation and a falling dollar. Gold prices have taken off, and yes, oil prices have taken off as well. Biden said yesterday deficit spending, he said spending doesn't cause inflation. I mean, you have to be really out there on the far, far, far left. It's called modern monetary theory. It's all a bunch of garbage to believe that the government can spend whatever it wants and the Fed can print how much money it wants and there's no inflationary impact. There isn't, I mean, it's so far outside the mainstream of the economics profession. And it certainly runs contrary to free market supply siders like myself. And all you have to do is look at the inflation gauges, look at the CPI, look at the, G look at the GDP deflator, look at the personal consumption deflator. I don't want to get too far. I'm probably already too far in the weeds, but I'm just saying to you, big deficit spending and big Federal Reserve money creation has caused so much aggregate demand, over-stimulus, over-consumer stimulus. Part of the reason we have these supply shortages is we're creating too much demand by these government policies. And then, on top of that, Biden has undertaken this massive government regulatory octopus whose tentacles reach out into all these regulatory agencies and have strangled our oil and gas industry. Strangled it. You know, my pal Steve Forbes calls it modern socialism. Modern socialism is not to have the government buy the factories, what we used to call the means of production, you know, back in the era of Lenin and Stalin and so forth. No, 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 they don't do that anymore. They just use the regulatory agencies 
through executive presidential orders, and that is what has killed our oil and gas industry. What are the regulatory agencies? Well, the Energy Department, the Interior Department, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, EPA, lately the SEC, the Federal Reserve Board. They've created this new metric, which is called the social cost of carbon, which we in the Trump administration basically ignored because it was so far-fetched and had no acceptance among analysts, scientists, economists. They, go, they went back, the, the Biden people go, go back three centuries to compile data? Really? I wasn't even around three centuries ago. He's saying something. And then they want, what's the impact of a new pipeline upstream for consumption, downstream for production users, globally? And they come up with outrageous whatever it is, $57 per megawatt or $57 per something. We kept it at $7 in the Trump years. All they want to do is price energy, price carbon-related energy out of the market. For example, FERC, using these various, you know, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, they suspended the NEPA uh, permitting, you know, we had it down to one to two years. They've suspended that. Judges have just tried to enjoin them, but they just are tied up in court. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission will not allow any new pipelines. No pipelines. So Madam Saki the other day says, "Well, those pipelines don't matter. They're just a form of distribution. They don't actually produce any new oil." You know what, that's, that's, like, that's like saying, when you milk a cow, you leave all the milk on the barn floor. There's no distribution. But the trouble is then nobody would get milk. So without pipelines, nobody would get oil or natural gas. Pipelines, by the way, are the safest way to transport oil and gas, as you all probably know. She doesn't know because she's tied in with this far-left agenda business. She's shilling for her president. Okay, I get that. That's her job. Press secretary, you show for the president. But it's a pity you can never tell the truth. So this regulatory octopus has completely choked off our oil and gas industry and our pipeline industry. And that means on the supply side of energy, even though demand is very high because we've overstimulated demand with deficit financing, they've kept oil and gas low. So the price goes up. So middle-class families, typical families, working folks, working folks, right now at near 8% inflation are paying about $3,500 a year per family. It's an inflation tax. So wages are going up, which is great in my opinion, but prices are going up faster, so real wages, your actual real take-home pay is going down. People are hurting. That's why Biden's polls are so bad, and he is in complete denial. His regulatory 
octopus is strangling oil and gas. His deficit spending is increasing aggregate demand, overstimulating. That's a bad combination. And all the indicators show, you know what? We're not done here. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse because he is in denial about his po He will not own his policy failures. You have blamed Putin. Putin has virtually nothing to do with this story except March, you'll see a very high CPI. That's all. Actually, oil prices are off their highs. So I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about some other stuff, you know. I want to talk about the XL pipeline, which could be finished in one year, according to industry experts. The premier of Alberta and Canada, Alberta, Canada, they're friends of ours, not Iran, not Venezuela, who hate us and our terrorist rogue regimes and dictatorships. Alberta is ready to ship 800,000 barrels per day if we would give them a pipeline that gets it from Alberta through Nebraska, where it would then hook up to another pipeline to get it to the Gulf of Mexico, where it would be distributed, yes, distribution, Madam Saki, to the Northeast, to Europe, and even to Asia. You know, this stuff can be fixed, but when you have a bunch of radical lefties running the place in denial, playing the blame game on a Putin, they won't be fixed. And my great fear is this story will not have a happy ending. No happy ending looks out there to me. The best I can say is the cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. That's in November. Anyway, let me take a quick break. And then I want to come back. I want to read some poll numbers. And we've got Douglas Holtzikin, one of America's best economists, an old friend of mine, He'll be on the other side of the break to talk about this over-regulation business and too much government spending. I'm Kudlow, LarryKudlowShow.com. Live stream us around the country, around the globe, throughout the solar system. We'll be right back with Biden's Pinocchios. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. We're broadcasting from Naples, Florida. It's a lovely place. Um, you know, Biden's uh, attempts to blame Putin, and before that he blamed the pandemic, um, then he blamed supply shortages. He'd blame everything but his own policies of deficit spending, easy money, and the regulatory clamp down on oil and gas. They're not playing. I mean, he's kind of digging his own grave, and he's digging it deeper and deeper. The latest survey from the Wall Street Journal poll, which is a much better poll than it used to be, uh, because Tony Fabrizio is doing the Republican side. Fabrizio is really quite good. Anyway, um, Biden is way underwater. 57 percent of voters disapprove, 42% approve. I mean, he's got a big problem here. And 63% disapprove of Biden's handling of rising inflation. It's his worst rating on six policy issues. 63% disapprove of inflation. Inflation is the number one issue, number one. 
So he's got a problem, and I guess what I would say is he's not fooling anybody. People know darn well, and they're feeling it in their pocketbooks, but they know darn well government is too big, too much central planning, too much woke, too much uh, extreme radical climate change. I'm not a climate denier. I'm an all-of-the-above guy. Sensible position, common sense. We should have oil, gas, coal. Wind turbines, solar panels, nuclear, all the above. But you can't block out carbon fuels, which are funding 75% of our economy. It's insane. It's suicidal. And that's what Joe Biden's trying to do. We'll be right back on the other side of the break with Douglas Holtz Egan. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We welcome to the show an old friend, Doug Holtz Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Dougie Holtz Eakin, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm well, Larry. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yes. You know, I've been um, thinking about you trying to get you on the, the TV or the radio because I read someplace that your group had estimated new regulations in uh, Biden's first year came to something like, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, something like $200 billion or slightly over $200 billion for new regulations in just the first year alone. Is that, was that the analysis that you all made? Uh, yeah. Um, we've got uh, a group that uh, tracks every regulation issued by the federal government. And uh, uh, we have every, all the data going back to 2005. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, you, well, first, let me thank you for your service, mm-hmm. regardless of party, regardless of president. People should understand just what you sacrificed in doing that job. And I want to say thank you. It's thank just you, a tremendous you. Tremendous job. And here's what you accomplished. Um, the the uh, Biden administration issued a costly regulation at an average rate of 1.1 a day every day for eight straight years, and they ran up $890 billion in regulatory costs. Hmm. And the Trump administration got in and out with about $23 billion total over four years. Hmm. Unbelievable. Hmm. So I said it couldn't be done, and you did it. It was fantastic. The Biden administration has uh, racked up $201 billion of regulatory costs in the first year, and it is the most expensive first year of any president we've, we've studied. So I'm, I'm quite nervous about the trajectory uh, because there's every reason to believe that with not a great chance of getting any th- through the Congress, they're going to do everything by executive uh, action, and it's going to be an extraordinary burden on the economy. See, I think that's a, you know, the regulatory stuff always somehow is viewed as less sexy, Doug, you know, because yeah. not as sexy as taxes or spending or Fed or whatever. But it's really important, and it affects the supply side of the economy, and it affects incentives uh, to work and produce. And so <laughs> $201 billion, first of all, let's establish, $201 billion in new regs in, in the first year is a lot. <laughs> is that fair? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and you're exactly right. I think of these as just stealth taxes. Yeah. You don't see them. You don't know they're out there. Yeah. But they're affecting every decision businesses make. And one of the decisions they're going to make is we're not going to hire somebody or we're not going to invest in a new 
uh, uh, plant, and we're not going to get uh, upgrade our technologies. And and I I was always amazed that the Obama guy said, "Oh, this is the kind of bad recovery you get when you come out of a a, a big recession caused by a, a wealth bubble bursting." No, if you put up eight hundred ninety billion dollars of headwind, mm-hmm. you don't grow. And if we go at two hundred billion a year, we're not going to grow. I mean, it's a, it's a real concern. Where is that predominantly? Is there, are there specific areas that um, that were hit the hardest on these on these two hundred one billion dollars in new regs? Uh, it's the it's the energy sector, and um, and you know a- anything that uses fossil fuels, cars in particular. Uh, they got one round of regs on carbon emissions from cars. They're going to go for another round on ma- cafe standards, and you know this is just uh, uh, just an uh, undisguised assault on the use of fossil fuels. And uh, they 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 argue you need to do this for climate change, but uh, anyone who's studied the economics of climate change knows that uh, for decades all fossil fuels will still be in the mix, and that. The bridge fuel is actually natural gas, so they mm. they've got the economics of this wrong, and and it's going to hurt the economy. It's going to hurt it bad. Well, I think it already, to some extent, it already is. Are you familiar with this um, social cost of carbon metric that they're using? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. So this is how you um, uh, stack the regulatory deck. Uh, you you say, look, uh, the cost of a, a of a uh, carbon going to the atmosphere is, let's say, $200 a ton. That way, anytime you, you do a regulation that reduces the use of a, a, a carbon fuel, you get to claim a benefit of $200 for every ton that you uh, uh, stop going into the air, and you can make almost any regulation pass the benefit cost test if you, if you move that number around enough. And that's, and that's exactly what they're up to. Well, what I understand, I, I've talked to Andrew Wheeler, who's the former EPA Actually, I've got um, David Bernhardt coming on this show later, former Interior Secretary. But the the thing is, that it's like they're making stuff up. So, as I understand it, they go look at some back data, like over centuries, and then they try to measure upstream, downstream, and they try to measure the global. In other words, Dougie, they're measuring stuff that can't, that virtually can't be measured. And the intent is, as you said, uh, they're just trying to stack the deck against any carbon uh, increases. Uh, yeah, this is this is only one part of what um, this administration is up to. One of the very first things President Biden did was sign an executive order on, quote, modernizing the regulatory state, where he ordered OMB to find a way to get into the, the calculations un, unmeasured and uncounted benefits. Hmm. Well, that's just crazy. You just That just says... I decide that this is good enough for the climate that it's worth doing. It, it, it takes all the discipline out of the, the regulatory process, and, and anything can pass. And, and they, they do it with the social cost of carbon. They're doing it with this executive order. And um, it, it's because they, they really don't believe in the private sector, and they don't care what damage they do to it. it it's a really troubling situation. Yeah. I mean, um, in the regulatory community, Doug, is this – widely accepted this um social no, cost no. of carbon uh it it the concept would be fine mm-hmm. and if it was done the way the regulatory process is supposed to work which is gather evidence do it across the administration identify the the best estimate then put it out to the public for notice and and, and get comments on it 
take those comments seriously and, and fix what's uh, wrong and, and indefensible and come up with an, a number that the country as a whole can can agree on. But they, they, they skip those steps. You can't do it that way. You have, mm. to, you have to really take the regulatory process seriously and let people weigh in on what you're proposing to do. Mm. Um, Doug Holtzikin, was there a second rank besides the um, energy carbon area in this $200 billion regulatory assault? Well, it's going to be uh, uh, the, the leading edge of all sorts of uh, regs coming out of the Energy Department on essentially efficiency standards, because if you don't use any energy, you don't have demand for carbon fuels. And so uh, we'll see those. Those have already already uh, begun uh, doing those rulemaking. And, and we'll see it across the government on climate. Uh, they're going to go into the labor market and redo a lot of things that um, the Obama administration did and the Trump administration undid, some really damaging joint employer rules, which get which essentially right. make the franchise model go That's away. Right. And I think right. they declare a lot of independent contractors to be employees, make sure they, that they have to have benefits. That, mm. And in the process, they try to restore the labor market of 1955, which is just a crazy notion. <laughs> Flexible and, you know, you know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's right. When labor dominated everything. Yeah, unions yeah. dominated everything. I'm all yeah. for labor. I'm just not for these kinds of stacked it, stack it against uh, individual work of choice. Doug, put your CBO hat on for us. Um, what's your take on this latest um, uh, omnibus uh, discretionary oh. spending bill? One point five trillion plus earmarks. Look, this is this is a disgrace. Um, it's it's just a big bloated bill. You know how this works. You have twelve appropriations bills you're supposed to do. If you do it this way, you you spend more than the sum of what the original twelve would have been for sure because everything gets jammed in there. They they brought back the earmarks and there are a hundred fifty pages of earmarks for the labor and HHS uh, segment of the bill alone. So that's mind-boggling what's going to be in there, and and the totals, um, you know. Are, are much bigger than we need uh, because they hold the defense department hostage and every dollar that they need and look at the world situation the defense department's going to need some funding they they get another buck buck and a half in the discretionary side on, on domestic issues so there's a it's a lot of excess, excess spending in this not not the way you should, we should be doing business yeah there's no discipline to it you know they didn't even you go back to um my friend and mentor phil graham i mean suppose you put a target out there let's say domestic spending, why not have a sequester, at least a sequester threat or some kind of caps or something that would impose discipline? I don't know exactly what it would be. I've been in and out of the budget game for a long time, so have you. I mean, I, there has to be a penalty threat someplace. There has to be caps that are enforced someplace. Right now it's fiscal insanity. I, I couldn't agree more. The trouble is that you can't tie the hands of a future Congress. So if Congress puts in place a set of caps and restrictions, the next Congress can just vote to ignore them. And they do that on a regular basis. Mm. They say, you know, this is a big problem. We're going to do better in the future. We're going to put these caps on. We're going to make you pay for things if, if you have more spending. And then they take a vote and wipe it all out. It's, uh, it's, it's something I've watched for two decades, and it's, it really just hasn't changed. And, you know, Really across party lines. So you have our, our dear friend Kevin Hassett, mm -hmm. but you also have Larry Summers or Jason Furman, all pretty much arguing 
that uh, deficit spending is a principal cause of inflation. What do you think about that? Uh, that that's dead right. Um, uh, Larry Summers and I had a real disagreement about this when they passed the uh, $2 trillion stimulus last March. It was, uh, it was a year ago yesterday. And mm. I thought what we'd see is what we'd seen in May of 2020, you know, with, with everyone all locked down, you take that money and you stick it in your savings account, and then you look at your savings account, it's getting zero. So you think, hmm, I'll go get myself a Robinhood app and I'll buy myself some cryptos and maybe a little GameStop. And pretty soon we'll, we've got asset bubbles all over the economy because we're just pushing uh, the fiscal stimulus into asset markets. And we already got the monetary stimulus in there. And I thought that's what we'd see. We'd, uh, but I was wrong because the vaccines rolled out and the economy opened up and people took it right out of those accounts and spent it. And, and that's where the inflation came up. There's no doubt about it. One of the things you can do there, it's really interesting. They, they always say, it's not us. Look around the world. You, you have a record high inflation in Europe and places. Well, that's true. So if you look at the data for 2021, Europe uh, consumer price inflation went up by about a percentage point every quarter, went from mm-hmm. zero to four percent. U.S. Okay, so we we got about one percent in the first quarter, but we got three times that in the second quarter, right after they sent out all the checks. Yep. And it just skyrocketed, and and it's 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 as plain as day in the data, and and denied is nuts. They made the mistake. Now we got to fix it, and that means stop doing it. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me, you know, honest people in both political parties have now come around to that view. I personally am paying more attention to spending and deficit spending than I ever have in my, in my career. I, I, it's, it's something I've worried about a long time, as you know. Yes. I, I, I think we're really in, in, in a bad place right now. And, and I don't think they even understand the problem, the, the on-the-ground problem. If you... If you look at the top line, it's 7.9% over the past year. That's bad inflation. If you look at the bundle of food, energy, and and shelter, that's more than 50% of the typical American family budget. Mm-hmm. That's going up at 8.4%. Mm-hmm. So that's what people are seeing on the ground every day. And you can't fool them by saying, ignore food and energy. Look at the core inflation. No, they have to pay those bills. And, and, and this is a big problem uh, right now. I don't know how this is going to end, Doug. I fear it's going to end very badly. Um, and it didn't have to be this way. You know, one of the things I tried to, I've, I've learned is that my way of thinking about things, you know, I'm a trained economist, do the analytics, that doesn't sing to a lot of politicians. So I went back and I looked. In 1951, the U.S. economy was growing at 10.5%. Think about that, 10.5%. And then we got into the Korean War, and we raised government spending by 50%. Well, that's called excess stimulus in a hot economy that's exactly what they did uh last march and what it did in 1951 is produce six percentage point jump in inflation guess what same thing (laughs) i mean learn the lesson of history i mean that's all you need to do but if the administration is basically in denial which they are you heard it again yesterday in biden's he was answering some questions blah 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 if you're in denial about it if you don't own it uh, it's going to be impossible to to deal with it. And um, this modern monetary theory, Douglas Holtzegan, <laughs> that's what they're basing it on, modern monetary yeah. theory, which is a wonderful thing. You can drink as much as you want, vodka, scotch, bourbon, it doesn't matter. No, nothing bad will come of it. You can spend as much as you want. You can print as much money as you like, and nothing bad will come of it, Doug. And in 2020, they all thought they be- that they should believe it. And one year later, look what we got. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, this is one where the facts are going to just uh, defeat the notion on the ground because you just can't look at the world that we have out in the U.S. US and around the globe and believe that this is true. Every country is going to have trouble now. All right. Doug Haltekin is president of the American Action Former, uh, Forum, and he's a former director of the CBO, and he's a very old friend. Dougie, thank you for time Saturday morning. You're terrific, buddy. Talk Take soon. care, Larry. You betcha. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to take a little break, and I'll be right back on the other side. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I wanted to put a cap on some of the things that Doug Holtzikin was talking about. He's a very smart guy. Um, he's a Republican economist, conservative economist, but he worked as head of the CBO, which is a nonpartisan operation. He did a good job there. Uh, he's advised a number of presidential candidates. I've known him for a long time. Uh, his idea, his thought, his stat that the Biden administration in the first year has increased government regulations by $201 billion is something worth holding on to. Okay? It's something worth thinking about because it's so big. It is so ginormous. It's almost beyond the pale. So like during the uh, I think that what Doug said was during the whole Obama administration, which was eight years, they did about, I guess, 1.1, 1. 1, uh, 100, right, 100, we'll call it 100 billion in regs uh, per year. So they got to 800. So the Bidens have doubled that to 200 billion in their first year, and they're going strong. So that's going to right there weigh down the economy. That is anti-growth, anti-entrepreneurship, anti-business. Ultimately, by the way, it's anti-worker because if the business suffers, the worker suffers. You can't have a good-paying job without a healthy business. I've said that a million times. The left doesn't understand it, or at least they don't agree with it. But, 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 but what Dougie also said is that the, the preponderance of these new regulations is falling on the energy industry. Okay, that's the rub. So when I talk about, I mean, I said this on the Cudlow Show on Fox Business, and I'm saying it here, and I've written it up in a column, uh, this regulatory octopus whose tentacles reach every part of the energy business. And as Doug Holtzikin mentioned the Biden administration issuing these regulatory orders, their executive regulatory orders, they're just looking for a way. They're not going through cost-benefit analysis. They're not going through disciplined analysis of any kind. They don't fit the bill of the regulatory community. This is their own invention, and they're re-measuring costs in far out ways that have only one purpose, and that is to block the production and the pipelining transportation of oil and gas. And I would add coal to that as well. That's what they want. And they're doing it through the regulatory arm, and that goes back to what I mentioned earlier with my pal Steve Forbes, who said, 
Modern socialism is central planning through the regulatory state, the regulatory octopus. You don't, you don't have to take over the factories. You just have central planning from the White House and the various agencies that, of course, report to the White House. That's the way you do it. That's called socialism. That's called big government socialism. And that's something worth pondering because that's the direction Biden's going and he will destroy the energy business. He'll destroy it, at least the carbon part of it, which is about 75% of our power. And think about this. You can't have an economy that grows without power. The wind turbines and the solar panels, I'm fine with that, by the way. It's um, three, four, maybe 5% of our power at most and it's not reliable power, particularly the wind turbines, not reliable, it's not sustainable. What is sustainable is oil and natural gas. We have a couple hundred years worth, and these are agreed upon factoids, you know? I'm not making this stuff up. Go to the website of the American Petroleum Institute, you'll see the data. And the data is confirmed by, in the Energy Department, go to the Energy Department, and um, they have their think tank in there, the something-something Energy Administration, IEA, I think it's called. And, you know, they, you'll see the numbers. So you can't grow. And if you don't grow, but you're stimulating the economy through constant government spending, that's your deficit spending, and money creation, you have too much money chasing too few goods, which is what Milton Friedman taught us probably 75 years ago, will cause inflation. It is inevitable. It's not about Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a terrorist. He's a dictator. He's probably a war criminal. I don't have any problem with any of that stuff. You know, as a rule, I don't like economic sanctions, but we're trying to punish him. It's the right thing to do. Biden's leading from behind, but at least he's done something on that. Now we're going to take him on on his trade. I don't like trade tariffs, but for a while we're going to have to punish him again. Anything to take his money away, anything to rob his finances for the war machine. But if you withhold energy from the market and if you increase consumer demand through government spending and money printing, that drives up prices. The world price goes up to $110 a barrel, and that drives up gasoline prices, and that does great damage to ordinary American folks, okay? These estimates, these estimates of $3,500 a year inflation tax, they're probably on the low end because inflation rate's rising. It's going to go to 10%, may go higher than that. You follow me? This is not, this is not just a question of whether you believe in climate change. They are taking active steps because of their left-wing green ideology, far left. They are doing great damage to the economy and to middle-class working folks. Just think of that. Other side of this break, we're going to talk to General Jack Keane, my friend and mentor, about the state of the war in the Ukraine. Please, I'm Larry Kudlow. Hang around with us. Lots more to do today. Naples, Florida, folks. It's a lovely place.
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us throughout the country and around the globe and throughout the solar system. We will turn to the Ukraine story. And we bring in our dear friend and mentor, General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman, Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. And I also want to add, as I always do, a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. I was in the room when he received that great award. So, General Keene, thank you, sir. I know you're very busy. Everybody wants you, um, but you're blessing us with your presence. I want to begin. I'm just looking at the Wall Street Journal uh, page here. Russian strikes intensify near Kyiv. Zelensky says Russian forces abducted the mayor of a southern Ukrainian city, foresees new stage of terror. But, General, I wanted to ask you, so the Russians don't seem to really be making headway to take Kyiv, and the convoy has been broken up. I was listening to Brett Baer reporting last night saying that although the odds are stacked against the Ukrainians, in some sense the Ukrainians are actually winning in the, in the <laughs> Kyiv assault. And I just wondered how you saw this military situation. Yeah, sure. Certainly, Larry. It's taken them a little over two weeks to finally reach the outskirts of Kyiv with their combat formations there to the northeast and to the northwest, split by the Nipper River, which runs right through the, uh, the center of the city, and that's why they have forces on both sides of it. So they're in the final stages of preparation for what I would term the battle for Kyiv. Mm. And, and they're, they're, the last couple of days they had some, uh, they were in some pretty good fights. You've probably seen some of the videos that have been out there uh, looking at those fights, and, and they had troubles with them. So they're replacing, they're trying to uh, bring replacement vehicles, replacement supplies, and replacement people forward. The people that bring them forward are going to be likely uh, considerably less trained than the people that are already there who are not very well trained to begin with. So what, is, what will happen now is they'll try to bring up uh, as much artillery and other units as they can to join with their forward units that are on the outskirts of the city. The Ukrainians will interfere with that, and, and they've been very good at it. And then they'll begin to encircle the city on the east side of the river and the west side of the river. There's two mechanized Ukrainian brigades defending those axes, and that will be a tough fight. Uh, to get down and encircle the city. They want to encircle the city, Larry, so they can bring their artillery to bear and begin to hammer the city with area attack weapons like artillery and rocket artillery to rubble the city as much as they they possibly can and also use aerial bombardment uh, in addition to that. Their intent then would be, if they could, and this will take some time, their intent, and there's no guarantee that they're going to be able, the Russians are going to be able to encircle the city because the Ukrainians are going to fight them tooth and nail here. And uh, and they understand the significance, the Ukrainians certainly understand the significance of what the capital city represents to the entire campaign. Um, but their intent would be to rubble the city as much as possible and get a capitulation out of 
Zelensky without having to go into the city. Uh, and you've seen some of that being uh, carried out in some of the other cities where they uh, surrounded it. Uh, that's unlikely to happen, and they'll have to put forces inside the city. As poorly trained as the Russians uh, uh, seem to be in just uh, making an approach from the Belarus border to to the outskirts of Kiev and all the problems they've had, that indicates to me they're not going to be very well trained to deal with urban warfare, which is the most demanding type of close combat. And it does favor the defense. So I think in front of us, Larry, we have uh, likely uh, a, a number of weeks to deal with the battle for Kiev. Hmm. And the and the outcome, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I would have... I was saying it uh, it's a given you know that the Russians will uh, will overmatch the Ukrainians and, and it's no longer a given given the poor performance of the Russians and the extraordinary performance of the Ukrainians where does this lead I mean you, Ukrainians so you're saying sir if I get this right you're saying there's very good chance the Ukrainians can stop them from taking Kiev it's possible you know it's possible and and, and, I, and most of us would never have said that a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. I mean, what he wants, and, and this is why the, the strategy is so fundamentally flawed. He wants to topple the government. And he actually said it's not his and topple the government, make certain uh, Ukraine is neutral. It's in Russia's orbit. And it's not his intent to occupy Ukraine. Now, that... That's uh, an, an extraordinary statement because, yes, he would install a government that uh, Ukraine had once before, which was a pro-Russian government, and the people without arms, with no military involved, threw that leader out of the country. He fled to Russia. His name was Yanukovych mm. in 2014. Mm. And can you imagine, Russia would have to occupy the country, Larry, mm. to keep that, that pro-Russian government installed. And that would take more troops than what they have right now trying to take the country uh, because the people will fight back. That's why this strategically this thing is so fundamentally flawed on the part of the Russians. And it's largely due to their significant underestimation of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. And for the life of me, I mean, how could they so grossly miscalculate that, having been involved in Ukraine for the last eight years and still come to that conclusion is mystifying to most of us. It's a Putin defeat. Ultimately, it's going to be a Putin defeat. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Mm. He, uh, he he will not, in the long run, he will not have Ukraine in his orbit. Uh, NATO is strengthening. He's going to have more troops on his border, his western border now, in eastern NATO countries than they have ever had before. And certainly his economy is going to tank as a result of it. And while his people may not be feeling it right now immediately, they are going to feel it at some point. And certainly that's going to put huge pressure on the regime. And I would suspect that he's, he's going to face some leadership issues at some point, you know, dealing with his military and the elites that are prosecuting this war and the flawed strategy to enter into this conflict. And also, the leadership issues he'll face with his own people at some point. I don't think that's immediate, because they're controlling the narrative there on state television and radio, and they've locked down, you know, and locked out all the international broadcasting and the internet itself. 
but that'll take some time. If that's, uh, but yes, I mean, this is a major strategic failure on, on his part. It's, mm. it, it is, it's not disputable. Yeah. Um, just couple of, to revisit a couple of things that we talked about on television. Um, is, 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 one reads, it's reported Zelensky, and I don't know whether it's through Erdogan in Turkey or uh, Bennett from Israel or emissaries from Ukraine to Russia, but that Zelensky is saying, look, we won't go into NATO uh, and you can have uh, some sort of sovereignty for these Donetsk uh, territories in the uh, eastern part of the country. But I'm just, you know, as I listen to you, and th these are my instincts that this thing's going very badly for Putin, you know, maybe Zelensky doesn't have to give that stuff up. Yeah, I mean, I think the concession on NATO, given the fact that we know uh, the 30 countries in NATO would not approve Ukraine becoming a part of NATO if a vote was taken today. Also, they don't meet the, the conditions and criteria to join NATO, given some of the corruption and other issues that they have inside the country. And as long as Russians are inside the country, that would be a disqualifier uh, as well. It's got to be uh, an independent sovereign state where they're completely in control, you know, if you're going to be in NATO. So I, I, I don't think that's big a deal. Uh, and then Putin knew full well before he launched the invasion, although he was always using the NATO banner, you know, as part of his, his narrative, he knew full well that Ukraine uh, was likely not going to uh, be in NATO anytime soon. So that concession, I, and I don't think that's a big deal for the Ukrainian people. But the other one is, and he part, uh, Zelensky parsed that a little bit. It's not that he would be willing to give up the breakaway two republics where the Russian separatists have had uh, some level of control. They control one-third of each one of those republics. Uh, they have gained more control of it now. And what, what Zelensky said is we would have to work out how Ukrainians can live in those republics and still be a part of Ukraine. Mm. So that is a negotiating mm. item, as, I, as the way I took it. He just wouldn't summarily give those republics away. I don't believe his people would approve of that whatsoever. I mean, mm. they are hard fast about not giving up Ukrainian people and the territory that they're residing in to the Russians. So are there peace talks progressing at all, or we just have to go through this Kyiv process where the Russians kind of come in and the Ukrainians slam back? Yeah, I, I think Putin always talks during conflict, like uh, Schultz and the Macron are talking to him the last 24 hours. Mm -hmm. He'll always do that. Uh, but. You know, the person that's leading the discussions on the Belarus border with the Ukrainians in these negotiations is the deputy secretary of culture, <laughs> uh, who has okay. who has no standing <laughs> right. whatsoever in the Russian government. Right. So, so they're sending it, a it, corporal to deal yeah, with Yeah, it's, it's farcical. You know. <laughs> okay. Putin, Larry, Putin's intent, even though it just took longer than he expected, um, and he lost more casualties than expected. He is absolutely determined to take Kiev, to topple this government, to take control 
of, of this country, and he's about it, and he's going to stick with it no matter who's talking to him, Macron, Schultz. Hmm. Biden, Biden has done the right thing in not talking to him because he knows finally he got some good advice. He knows it's a complete waste of time. Uh, and, they, you know, they tried this multiple times before the invasion, and nothing nothing uh, dissuaded Putin. He was going to come the whole time. And he is still about accomplishing that mission, and he's not going to give up on that mission because it would be abject failure in the face of his people, in his mind. Mm. So he's going to stay with it, Larry. So the world, look at this. The weakness of the Red Army and the weakness of Vladimir Putin. Putin come out of this in a much weaker, lesser position than he went in? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's almost guaranteed. I mean, he put on the battlefield an army that it's... Uh, Everybody who's looked at it has come to the same conclusion. This army is poorly led. It is poorly trained. It does not know how to fight. Mm. It, it doesn't fight in formations. It, it, when they're fired upon, they react as individuals or as individual tanks. They've never been in a combat formation that I have seen. Putting, putting tanks and fighting vehicles in a single file and running them down the road, you would only do that to move from one point to another knowing you're going to be unopposed, knowing there's going to be no contact. And you would put reconnaissance out in front of it to make certain that that was the case. Hmm. Otherwise, if you believe you're going to be in contact, you're going to be in a combat formation. And a single file is not a combat formation. But that is what they're using the entire time. And then when they're fired upon... They don't go into a formation to fight back. They just pull off to the sides, and some of the people run out of their vehicles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've never seen anything uh, quite like it. So, yeah, I mean, his army is performing considerably below uh, what is an acceptable standard for a, mm-hmm. a conventional uh, army fighting a combined arms fight. Or and, certainly and they, a superpower. Yeah, and, and, I mean, it's, it's, oh very, God, it's very yeah. un-superpower-like. Yeah, so you're right about that. I mean, uh, Putin wanted to showcase his military here, Mm. have a quick success, and use it as an intimidator for others. This is what you're going to face. So when I'm looking for concessions from you, uh, president of Moldova or another country, this is what you're going to face. And everybody's looking at it, and there's only one conclusion you can come to. And that's weirdness, and it's got to be associated with him. You're absolutely right. When Just last one, sir. When the convoy broke down, I mean, it was reported that the soldiers were, were going into the tree line or some such thing. Are they fleeing the army? Is there like a total breakdown in discipline or what? Yeah, that's discipline. They're just running for their lives. Yeah. yeah. Now, now if, if the, the right thing to do, you know, we all saw that same video, and they were – that road was passing through what looked like a small village or a small town, residential uh, homes and in- industry things on the side of the road. So if you're coming through that and you suspect that you may uh, have contact there, the infantry that are, that are accompanying them should have been deployed on foot mm. and moved through those, uh, through those communities to make certain and flush out any enemy that was in there. That's where they were firing from. 
and and, and just it's just basic one on one stuff. I mm. when people have been trained to you know to fight wars are looking at that, just scratching their head and saying, "My God, who would ever do anything like that?" Mm. In, in in broad daylight, the leader of that organization brought his his people right into an ambush, mm. which which is there's certainly very fundamental ways to avoid something like that. Wow. Well, good. Putin takes the defeat, whatever. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Not, to a nicer Unavoidable. Yes. All right, I agree with you. General Jack Keane, thank you, sir. You are so great. We appreciate your time this morning. I know you're very, very busy. We'll, take, uh, we'll talk soon. I think you're going to come on the TV show on Monday, so you'll give us another yeah. fabulous update. Really appreciate it. Thank We're going to take a quick break. always enjoy it. Thanks. Yes, sir. We'll take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Don't go away. Much more coming. Just stay with us. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine is going to have a direct impact on your wallet. So Fox News, CNN, and other major news outlets reported that inflation would shoot past 10% if Russia invades Ukraine. It happened. How does that impact us? Russia is the third largest oil producer globally. When Trump left, oil was only $40 a barrel. Today, it's $100. Economists expect $120 to $150 a barrel. Biden shut down the XL pipeline, which would have given us 830,000 barrels a day. How does it feel every time you go to the pump or grocery store? What is this inflation doing to your retirement accounts? Call Monetary Gold and ask for the Rudy Giuliani special. They'll give you their protection guide free. Call Monetary Gold at 1-888-204-2141. That's 1-888-204-2141. Or visit monetarygold.com. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks, Larry Kudlow. You know, listening to General Keene, who is, my judgment at least, the single most credible military and strategic analyst. I mean, the guy's a genius. He's an absolute genius. He would be a hell of a good defense secretary, or for that matter, secretary of state, or for that matter, national security advisor. Anyway... You listen to that story, to, to, to his analysis of the failures of the Red Army and the uh, weakness being shown to the rest of the world. Don't forget the China part of this. And I have a somewhat different view on China. China has not unequivocally supported this Russian invasion of Ukraine. People are talking about how China and Russia tied at the hip or joined at the hip. Uh, I'm not saying they're not. But if you read carefully, you know, China abstained the vote in the U.N. Security Council. They did not support Russia. They abstained. All right. They're not going to vote against Russia. I get that. But they abstained. China's banks have pulled back lending to Russia. And China cannot make up the shortfall of uh, currency or transactions as the rest of the world fences off Russia from the economy. Sanctioning the central bank was the right thing to do. And I know that we have not, we, the U.S. or Europe, have not sanctioned all of the oil companies. But you know what? It's so hard to make any transactions uh, that you've seen self-sanctioning. 
major oil companies, you know, Mobile, Shell, BP, etc. So my point is, this to some extent is a warning shot to China. That's where I'm going with this. I know a little bit about the China story. I was on the China trade team, been to Beijing, attended all the meetings in Washington, etc., etc. Um, this is a warning shot to China that whether through military means or through financial economic means, the kind of adventurism that Vladimir Putin unwisely undertook with Ukraine may well reverberate in China with respect to their thinking about Taiwan. And Taiwan, by the way, is a much richer country than Russia. Taiwan has better military, better equipped. We keep sending them weapons, which is the right thing to do. I'm just saying that the weakness of Russia, first of all, downgrades Russia enormously. They will not recover from this for a long time. This was a huge mistake by Vladimir Putin, huge. But I think it sends a warning signal to China. Don't think you can get away with murder without any opposition, without any retaliation, without any consequences. I think it's a good thing, and of course we must beef up our presence throughout what's you know, Indo-Pacific. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We will close down this part of it. Mr. David Bernhardt, former Interior Secretary, is going to come on at the other side of this break and then talk some more about the oil and the energy and the regulatory octopus situation. Please stick around. Much more to do. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. Here's Larry Kudlow from Naples, Florida. Going to give a speech to Ave Maria University tonight. It's a great group. Catholic group. But lots of excellence. So there's my plug for Ave Maria. Anyway, we're going to plug the show here. Well, wait, one thing I have not said, I can't believe it. 90 minutes into it or more, you have to dial us up, Fox Business, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Cudlow. Cudlow. And by the way, if you can't, if you can't get it at 4, just call up your favorite 9-year-old who will DVR the show for you, and you'll never miss a thing. Only nine-year-olds can do this kind of thing. And now I want to return back to the energy story. My great friend David Bernhardt, who was the Interior Secretary during the Trump administration, he's now helping out with the America First Policy Institute, and I think he's even practicing some law on the side someplace. Uh, David, thanks for helping us. Thanks for coming on the TV show, too. Really appreciate that. Great to be here, Larry. So, look, I was talking to, you, you know, Douglas Holtz-Eakin? Mm-hmm. Of course you do. Yes. Smart guy. Um, I, I'm still focused on what I call this regulatory uh, octopus whose tenant, tentacles going through all these agencies, Interior and FERC and Energy and EPA maybe even financially, the SEC and the Federal Reserve trying to take credit away from fossil fuel companies. But this business, David Bernhardt, about the, the um, social cost of carbon, which, they, which the Bidens are using to reject 
all kinds of applications, as I understand it. You know, Granholm at the Energy Department, who knows nothing, all she does is giggle when she's asked a question. She's like Kamala Harris. They like to giggle because they don't know anything. She's sitting on all these LNG projects. FERC looks like it'll never okay uh, a pipeline again in my lifetime. But just in general, they're using this huge amount per ton, $57 per ton or some such thing. Can you walk us through this? Because, you know, um, Doug Holtzikin just thought it was utter nonsense. He called it unmeasured, unmeasured <laughs> uh, costs and benefits. They don't go through the usual procedure that they're supposed to go through for new regs. Can you talk to us about the harm that these um, new metrics are doing to the um, oil and gas business that we need so desperately? Well, yes. Um, and, Larry, I think your, your terminology of an octopus with tentacles is just so, um, so accurate, except, you know, an octopus – like says there's eight and, and they have literally um, reached out um, everywhere. And you're seeing the um, what, what's going on, particularly with the social cost of carbon mm. is, is saying, Hey, we have to analyze um, what we believe might be the cost of a project um, from this um, quantification that is, purely based um, on speculative assumptions, speculative numbers, and not tied to reality. Mm. And so it's really just throwing stuff against the wall. But they're using it um, as guidance from, from OMB. Um, they're trying to use it to impose um, a additional cost on, on normal uh, things as a way of demonstrating that additional regulatory costs lead to higher energy prices across the board. And remember, their strategy here across the board, in my opinion, is to drive up energy costs overall. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, uh, the Green New Deal becomes a um, greater reality. So at first, what you have is they're taking these ideas and saying, look, we need to um, utilize these ideas such as social cost of carbon and actually take longer to do all of our uh, permitting uh, processes and analysis. And they're literally, as you know, expanding the timeline it takes to do infrastructure in an environment that is already um, ha already has extraordinary length of time to it. And what they're doing is, is it's Simply, your octopus analogy is right, that every single tentacle is trying to stretch the length of time. Every regulatory initiative they have is one that is focused on expanding the length of time for that particular regulation so that cumulatively it almost becomes an environment where it will be virtually impossible to permit infrastructure activities related to fossil fuels on public land or private land. Mm. It is extraordinary. And just, you know, I can just run, run through them. And you know these so well because you worked for years uh, in the Trump administration to bring these down. But 
you know, the NEPA regulations will be expanded. WOTUS is uh, supposed to be expanded. The Endangered Species Act regulations would apply where spe- in their view where species don't even exist. And the list goes on and on and on. And each one of those individually expands the time frame. Um, and, and, and some will just be completely unworkable at the end of the day. And it's my opinion, this is just my opinion, that this is a concerted effort to make um, energy costs so high that, um, that we're looking at other things. And, mm. and, you know, at the same time they're doing that, they're now saying, well, let's get uh, the energy industry moving. And, and they have, they're doing these activities. On the Hill, they're threatening windfall profit taxes. Mm. You're right about the SEC and, um, you know, uh, John Kerry on the seventh day of the administration was out saying, look, no more uh, financing fossil fuel projects. And, and that is their, their um, your analogy of octopus is completely right, except they're literally wrapping their, arm, their tentacles around this massive engine of economic and national security and, and trying to, to simply crush it. You know, down in this, uh, this oil conference, whatever it's called, Sarah, uh, down in Texas, I don't know if you saw the news reports. Manchin starts yelling at the guy who runs FERC, do your job, do your job. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, Manchin's the head, obviously the head of the whatever it is, Energy and Natural Senate Resources Energy Committee. Committee. Senate yeah. Energy Committee. That's yep. a big deal. <laughs> it's a very big deal. Well, and he's not doing his job. Right. Well, just think how extraordinary it would be um, uh, that a, you know, and, and part of this is just things don't want to make the news, but something like that. Just think how extraordinary it would be to have a Democratic senator, which is Joe Manchin, doing that mm. to um, to folks. And here's why his rea- he's a great guy, by the way. Mm. And here's why he's doing it. He recognizes that the American people are the ones hurting here. This isn't some theoretical, um, interesting academic exercise to, to think about how things might play out. What we know right now is that American consumers are paying more for literally everything. Things are getting harder and harder. And and he is reacting uh, to the views of his constituency. And, you know, his constituency is not in, you know, some major urban area um, where uh, gas and oil are just not things that you think of. So people are telling me, industry people are telling me, David Bernhardt, that the XL pipeline could actually be completed in a year that they said by the first quarter of 2023. Now, I don't know the structure of this thing. How much of that pipeline, if any, was actually built? Do you know? Well, there is some that has been uh, constructed, but but what you're really talking about, it's a massive uh, exercise. I think a year, to be honest with you, Larry, is a little ambitious. Mm -hmm. It also depends when you start given, you know, if you're you're, um, the, the season for constructing uh, in places like Montana and others, you know, um, you really have to have things staged, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were poised to do that. Let's be clear. They were poised to, to hit the trigger and go, and they got yanked back. But, but let's, let's just say, let's give them a break and let's say a year and a half, okay? Mm-hmm. A year and a half. And, um, 
And what you have is a tremendous resource that you could turn on, and they decided to turn off. And that's besides all of the economic activity that flows to these smaller rural areas as you're constructing these uh, facilities. And, and, you know, that's an important component. You know better than almost anybody the strength um, President Trump had and the flexibility by being able to do LNG uh, uh, agreements and and utilizing that as part of our foreign policy and equally that energy engine drives the economy in so many of these communities and to to literally shut it off just makes absolutely no sense see that well two things quickly one is the people in alberta are ready to pour eight hundred thousand barrels per day through this you know if we could get keystone hooked up through Nebraska and then on its way down to the Gulf. Um, they're ready. 800000 by the way, is a lot. That's right. And that would be reflected in lower prices in the futures market, David, which would be arbitrage towards the spot market, you know? I mean, the dummies in the Biden administration do not understand that. But the other thing I wanted to mention to you is we all worked so hard, right? Myself, Andrew Ullman, Francis Brooke, you, uh, Andrew Wheeler, and, you know, others – Rick Perry, of course, and Dan Briette, to use to t- uh, shorten the NEPA permitting periods, um, not seven years or 10 years or 15 years for a project, but one to two years. Now, what I gather is the Bidens have thrown that out, that this you know, two-year period from NEPA permitting is gone. So besides you know, throwing roadblocks like the Endangered Species Act or the Clean Water Act, They've mangled uh, what we did on NEPA, and and You're that was really right. one of the I think it was one of the best things we all worked on. Look, if, if there's anything um, that would seem to make sense, it's like let's give a project time to look at it, think about it, get some alternative views, but let's have that take two years mm. instead of seventeen years. Mm. That was the president's goal, President Trump's goal, and that made eminent sense because here's what it also does. It gets rid of bad projects just as quickly and lets the good ones uh, go forward instead of having them languish there. And and it made sense. They they've they've said, look, we don't want timelines. We don't want timelines. And what and that is just a component, in my opinion, and a reflection on their desire to simply have every single piece of the regulatory process move slower and you know you uh with you know with this uh journalism experience i think every day like how many reporters would write in how many articles would reporters write a week if they were told they never had a deadline (laughs) they never had so like maybe a lot but but that's exactly (laughs) what they've said to the people that do NEPA work no deadlines guys no Mm -hmm. deadlines the president said look i want a two-year deadline and, you know, it's not a day deadline. Do your job. Do it well. But I want two years. And, um, and they said, nope, no timelines, no, um, no page limitations. Mm-hmm. We want you to take as long. And that's just one of the hundred of tentacles that they have um, crushing mm-hmm. rapid decision-making on the behalf of the American people. Yeah, behalf, behalf of screwing the American people. Uh, that's right. You know, these, oil, these gasoline costs have not 
not peaked yet. David, one other thing coming back to, I'm obsessed with this social cost of carbon thing because I didn't really encounter it when I was at the National Economic Council. I mean, it, we didn't, it wasn't a big deal. Andrew Wheeler, who uh, used to run EPA, mentioned to me on the TV show that they were, they were using $7 a ton. Uh, Obama used $53 a ton, and the Bidens are trying to raise that to like $70 plus a ton, which, as you noted, would price fossil fuels out, which is what they want, actually. But they're using, I'm not sure I understand this, uh, David Bernhardt, they're using centuries of data, or they're going back centuries, or are they going forward and like 300 years from now, what will the climate impact be? I don't understand that because well, I think exactly it's all right. total I mean, BS. It's all BS. Well, I mean, let's be honest, okay? In fairness to everybody, it's all blanket speculation. Whatever number you pick, out to the future. If you're looking at the, the, the costs that are predictable and, um, you know, actually uh, reasonably certain to occur here, you know, those costs are relatively remote. But once you begin speculating, here's the assumptions you have to make. First off, you have to make assumptions on the most complex environment on the planet, our entire climate. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make all sorts of assumptions about what technology changes will come in the future, mm -hmm. what uh, fuel demands will be in the future, what population demands will be in the future. And then you have to take all of that and perspective out 50, 150, 200 years it is nothing more than, than, an, than an effort to come up with an outcome and explain it backwards. That's okay. all it is at the end of the day. And look, we have a judge, uh, a judge this, this week um, that was, that, that's looked at this and said, look, this imposes a cost without going through the regulatory process on uh, states. I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, he, he's infusing a little bit of common sense into this system. But they're committed to it, and they're committed to doing it here, um, and they're committed to doing everything they can to slow down and make energy more expensive. And now they have the beauty of a new shiny object to point to and say, let's just blame, um, you know, someone else uh, uh, who, who declared a horrific war over here. We're going to blame him for all of these things that have not even gotten baked into the system yet. You know, Holtz Eakin told us earlier, David Bernhardt, that um – that in his first year, Biden put on $200 billion worth of new regulations. Like, over four years, Trump had only $23 billion for four years. That's right. Okay. That's right. Obama had about a billion, a, about $100 billion a year, so that he, he did almost $900 billion. This guy's got $200 billion. And then I asked him, I said, Dougie, where's, you know, where's, where's the, most of it gone? Energy energy because they're rolling back everything we did on energy exactly. independence that's that's what it's 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 a jihad it's an obsession david bernhardt you know what i mean it's an ideological obsession there's no common sense to it nothing and as you're saying there's no analytics to it there's no cost benefit regulatory review they're just throwing stuff on the wall and making it stick well, I listened to one for one um, Biden administration official say that they were trying to reimagine um, the, the, the future. And I just sat there and thought the problem with that, and that's great. But the problem is 
we don't live in an imaginary reality. <laughs> we live in the real world. And in the real world, you don't get to reimagine. You get to um, take the facts and circumstances you have and deal with, with things going forward. It's not imaginary. Wow. David Bernhardt, former Interior Secretary, and as you can hear, a damn good one. He's open, also helping out on the America First uh, Policy Institute. David, you're a prince for giving us some time on Saturday. We will talk soon. Thanks very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll come right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, you know, you heard, you heard David Bernhardt. And he kind of walked through this whole thing beautifully. And maybe a little quasi-boring, but it's not. Because the impact, when you look at $4.30 a gallon at the pump, and some of these states at $5, what did I see? I think California is up, up to $7. I don't know. But anyway, gasoline is up a lot. Gasoline hits everybody's pocketbook. So the Bidens are as phony as a $3 bill. They are making stuff up on the regulatory front to stop fossil fuels. This carbon cost, this uh, social cost of carbon that we talked about, I mean, it sounds kind of boring, I guess, social cost of carbon. But they're making assumptions about 50 or 100 years impact. Nobody can figure that out. Um, technological advances and innovations. I mean, for example, natural gas produced by the United States is the cleanest fuel. It's cleaner than that. I mean, Russia's natural gas, for example, is very dirty. Ours is cleaner than Canada's. Ours is cleaner than Mexico's. We've innovated, innovated. So you have these technological advances that bring down the carbon volume or the carbon cost. Then you have to make assumptions about, as David Bernhardt said, uh, population changes and the demand for fuel. And they're sending it out, by the way, globally. They're making global assumptions. So it all stacks the deck against fossil fuels because they're saying this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, therefore the carbon cost is $50 a ton or $70 a ton. The Trump administration used $7 a ton and we didn't extrapolate over the next 100 or 200 or 300 years. We didn't do any of that stuff. Here's the other point. Inside the, inside the government, the U.S. government, all these regulations are supposed to go through a very serious regulatory review of costs and benefits. Not wild assumptions, but actual quantitative, you know, numbers, empiric costs and benefits, and then you have all the agencies. This is what we did at the National Economic Council. We'd have these interagency meetings and we would preside and make sure the work got done. That's been thrown out the window by the Bidens. They've thrown it out the window. What they're basically doing is just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks, outrageous assumptions, outrageous costs, which then make 
Fossil fuels very expensive, and even though nat, uh, windmills, wind turbines is very very expensive, it's uh, they're trying to make fossil fuels even more expensive. Natural gas, the fracking revolution, and the horizontal drilling that came up with natural gas. Natural gas was cheap; it was cheap in the Permian Basin. Natural gas cost zero for a good long while. So of course it's cheaper than windmills and turbines and solar and the rest of that stuff. So what they've done has nothing to do with honest analysis, honest empirical fact-based reviews. What they have done is wild-eyed, prejudicial, left-wing, green assumptions. And so that's the fix that we're in because, well, we're not pumping as much oil even though world demand is up. We're not pumping as much natural gas, even though the world demand is up. We're not building new pipelines, even though the world demand is up. So when you cut back on supply, but you are increasing demand, what happens? Prices rise, and they rise a lot. And that's why you're paying almost four and a half bucks gasoline at the pump, and it ain't over yet. That's the point I've been trying to make by using our experts, Douglas Holtzik and and David Bernhardt and others. I'm Cudlow. We're going to do some stock market work on the other side of the break. Please hang around. You're going to love this. What do we do about the stock market, kids? Well, stay tuned. Much more coming. It's the Larry Cudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Cudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. Great pleasure to be with you as always. Join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Great stuff. If you can't get us at 4, get yourself your favorite 9-year-old who will DVD to the show for you. You'll never have to miss a thing. Now, let's do some stock market work. So stocks fell again for the week. I don't know. It's the fourth or fifth weekly decline. But the, market's, the market hasn't crashed. It's just going through some kind of corrective Medicine. Let's see. The Dow Jones was down 671 points. The Nasdaq off 470. The S&P 500 off 125. It is interesting to me. I'm going to highlight this for our two guests. So oil's at 109. Oil actually fell uh, a couple of bucks during the course of the week. But um, commodity prices continue to rise. The dollar is strong and stable against other currencies, but the dollar is losing its value very badly against commodities and gold. But the interesting in the market, in the Treasury market, the five-year break-evens, the CPI break-evens, all the way up to 3.62%. That's a forward, a forward measure of future inflation for five years, 362 the Fed's target is 2%. We'll probably not see it again in my lifetime. Anyway, let us go to our guest. Jack Berugian is here, founder and chief economist for UCX, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jim LeCamp, senior VP investments at Morgan Stanley. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much. Gentlemen, I'm just going to throw this out to you, that this inflation, which is... Uh, CPI inflation is 6.9%. Underlying inflation, you know, if you take out the 
the highs and the lows, you look at the Cleveland Fed median or the Dallas Fed median, inflation is at least 6%, and uh, consumer prices are 8 Neither has peaked. I'm going to say to you, this story will not end well for the economy. That's my point. It will not end well. High inflations never end well. And by that I mean there's a recession out there someplace that will damage stocks and will damage unemployment and will damage average working folks. Okay? When, I don't know, not smart enough to know how to play this as an investor, I'm going to leave it to you guys. But that's my point. I am very, very fearful right now that this will not end well. So why don't you kick us off, Jack Perusian? What you thinking? Well, you're right, Larry. It's not going to end well. In fact, I would argue that we've already seen the beginning of this, this entire problem, uh, this balloon, as it were, uh, starting to deflate. You know, look, all the tailwinds that we've seen over the course of the last few years have become headwinds all of a sudden. You've had a Fed now tightening. Right? They were they were they were dishing out cash left and right and printing up money like like drunken sailors before. Uh, you've got multiple contraction primarily because of that. We've got earnings contraction because now we've got a global addressable audience that's getting smaller by the day. And and quite frankly, you know, one of the things that concerns me most of all is what's happening, uh, you know, overseas. We've got we've got a lack of leadership in D.C. both on an international level and on the domestic level. All of that is being factored into the market as we speak. You know, you were talking about commodity inflation. There are really two different stories that are taking place there. You know, if you look at certain commodities, you look at copper, for example, look at coffee or sugar. These are these are commodities that don't worry about uh, fertilizer. They don't have those same needs. They've come off 10, 15 percent already from their highs. It's the it's the corns, it's the soybeans that are now pricing in that dependency, that supply chain uh, disruption for potash and everything called coming out of uh, either Belarus or, or out of Ukraine that's going to affect us. Wheat, which is a direct result of what's going on over there. All of that uh, it is really becoming a, a bifurcated story within the commodity markets when you break it down. And, and it's really simple when you, when you look at it, uh, because quite frankly, you see that overproduction is there. It's a question of when it'll hit the markets, and that's one of the reasons we still have a lot of backwardation in a lot of these commodity market pricing. Hmm. That's an interesting point, backwardization. You know, Jack, if they ever change their fossil fuel policies in the Biden administration, you'd get even deeper backwardization. And that would well, yeah, trend towards the spot it, market. It, it's amazing, Larry. We had it just a couple of years ago. And it's not only that. I mean look at look, if they were announced if they would announce that every Russian military leader was subject to a war crimes tribunal they would actually get something started over there and put a little seed in some of these guys' heads. Not only that, but we would actually show our Chinese friends what the civilized world is capable of doing. And these are the things that need to be coming out of D.C. That, of course, and, you know, look, there was a time where we did everything for the war effort back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, I mean, think about it. And now what we are doing is we're giving money to our enemies. That is the most insane thing I have ever heard in my 60 years of existence. That is insanity to me. Jim McCamp, what are you thinking? <laughs> well, in terms of the market, uh, just when we were ushering uh, COVID out the back door, in comes uh, Russia and Ukraine, 
and then the Federal Reserve Board is out there in the parking lot on their way in. I mean, uh, there's <laughs> there's not a lot to look forward to here. You've got like you've that. got um, all three major averages uh, below their 200-day moving average. The markets are reflecting all the concerns that you guys just expressed. And and worse, and we're not hearing any discussion about that, but if you look at the consumer savings rate, it has absolutely plummeted. So, and it's going to get worse because people are, you know, putting more money, filling up their cars. And even if they have an electric car, natural gas prices are, are so much higher now, it's going to cost them more to fill up their electric car or to recharge their electric car, I should say. So uh, we're not going to get any relief. I, I agree with Jack on food prices. We're not going to get any relief on gasoline prices, uh, home heating prices, and uh, the consumer savings rate is going to continue to uh, deteriorate. And uh, consumer spending ultimately comes from consumer saving. And I think we've got a real problem with stagflation. In fact, I think what we have to hope for is stagflation because uh, outside, if we get worse than stagflation, then it's recession. And I think we are going to get recession. But uh, I'm I'm hoping that uh, maybe we'll just have to deal with stagflation first, uh, and then it'll be a recession. Well, isn't that fun? Yeah. (laughs) Well, here's the thing, though. There are investment themes you can play, and I'm not telling people to go get fully invested in these areas because they're very, very volatile. But there's a lot of ETFs out there that you can trade on the commodity side. Uh, there's energy stocks that have done pretty pretty darn well. There are places and uh, pockets to hide. The, uh, the base metals have done well. Even even gold and silver, uh, yeah, not lockstep, but they've, they've traded higher. And and so there are some places to both hedge and put and deploy capital, but I certainly wouldn't take uh, an entire portfolio and load it up with these things. They're too volatile, and at any point you could see a 10 15% correction in those just because of the moves that they've made. So energy, I'm looking at the S&P sectors, the main sector. Year-to-date, energy is plus 37%. Everything else is underwater. Utilities off 2%, materials, commodities off 10 financials off 7 industrials off 8 consumer discretionary off 18 healthcare minus 9 telecom minus 18 infotech minus 17 even consumer staples are down uh, 7.5%. I mean, the thing is, Jack Bruggen, when you look at the macro picture, there are still quite a few stimulative areas. In other words, uh, the, uh, the inflation rise is profoundly restrictive because of the future consequences. And as Jim LeCamp said, the Fed is in the parking lot ready to come inside. On the other hand, uh, money supply growth is still very rapid, double digits, about 14% year on year. Um, government spending, we just had this $1.5 trillion bill. Um, you know, that's more sp- stimulative. It's deficit spending. There's no financing. In fact, the only financing of that is, um, is going to be the Fed's money creation. So you've got stimulus. Um, profits are very strong, at least through the fourth quarter into the first quarter. Now, we don't know a lot about first quarter profits, I'll grant you that, but nonetheless, they have been quite strong. Uh, wages are rising. 
Uh, jobs are rising nicely. They're recovering jobs. They're not new jobs. We're still a couple million jobs short of the pre-pandemic, but people are coming back to work. Unfortunately, the value of those wages uh, is turning negative because of the inflation problem. So, you, you know, you've, you've got pluses and minuses, but it's still a fairly stimulative economy, Jack Berger. Well, you know, something about the stock market, Larry, that we've all learned, the three of us that are on this call right now that know for a fact, is that it's very smart. It's very efficient. Mm. Everything that you said was priced into this market over the course of the last, say, six months. Mm. It's really a question of what we see from here on out and, and what we expect in another six to nine months that's really going to dictate where these prices go. You know, and, and, and going back to something that Jim said earlier, he said something about how you know, stagflation might be our best scenario. He, he's right in some cases, because the alternative to that, Larry, and think about this, is Japan in the 1990s, where we see a disinflationary spiral take place, and we end up with zombie banks. I you better be careful talking about that. I talked about that last time, and Larry spanked me. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, you know I'm, what? It he's is, walking the plank. <laughs> I, saw, I saw it happen firsthand as an officer of Nico Securities back there <laughs> in Japan. I saw it. And it, it, it feels almost the same way. All right, Not exactly the same, but almost the same. And what I would say, that is the scenario we don't want. So, you know, so is there a, a chance of a soft landing? Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe a 5% chance. Sure. I think there's a better chance sure that we're going to end Jack. up in, in some kind of a disruptive landing stage. Yeah, sure there is, Jack. So how many soft landings can you remember? All right. We've none, both been none. in the business. We've all been in the business a long time. We, soft landing, I don't even know how and where that term came about. There's no you know history I, for I that always, term. I always call the I always call the soft landing a landing a seven forty seven on an aircraft carrier. I said, you know what, you know what, there's there's a one in a million chance you might be able to do it, but you know what, I wouldn't try it. I mean, that's the now. I don't know if it's imminent. I'm just saying, the story ultimately will not end well. Uh, if you're a long term investor, Jim LeCamp. You probably just stay the course because you're not going to outwit it and you're not going to outtime it. Uh, well, um, right now the the big question is where to be if you're going if you're going to stay in the market. And I agree, it's very difficult to time out, time back in at the right time because the time to time back in is going to be when the news is the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. When when the headlines are are absolutely at their death knell, that's going to be your market bottom. So it, it's very difficult psychologically to time back in uh, at the right point unless you're, you, know, you get the perfect signal from the volatility index and a perfect reversal and uh, heavy volume. Uh, you might get some clues, but they aren't going to be perfect. So, yeah. But the question is where to go mm -hmm. um, because technology has been hit the worst. And technology has benefited from our 40-year-long rally in the bond market. Uh, and even though technology has been decimated, the valuations, you, you can't argue that they're compelling. You can't argue that they're cheap. So I think what you do as an investor is you focus on if you're going to have technology, uh, and I think you should, uh, the absolute leaders that are going to benefit from the current environment, some of the uh, main semiconductor companies, 
I think you mix in, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, some of the agricultural commodity-related areas and uh, keep some energy in the portfolio as well. Um, in terms of the banks and the industrials, uh, they've had a nice run. I just don't know that Wall Street hasn't baked the cake in financials for six, seven rate hikes, and I don't think we're going to get six, seven rate hikes. So I, I'm yeah, just we, wondering yeah, we are. if financials have overly priced in how many rate hikes we're actually going to get. They're going to they're gonna be forced to be much more aggressive guys trust me on this the fed's going to start slow because they're they're in the same kind of denial about inflation that biden's in and of course the fed's now the biden fed i mean even if this crazy woman sarah bloom raskin she may they may have to pull her nomination because um she's just such an extremist and she wants to deny credit to uh to fossil fuel companies and also, she still won't fess up about how she got this fintech company, Colorado, on the Fed wire. So Pat Toomey's uh, got uh, got her on stranglehold. Her not, but still, the rest of them are all climate people. They, they're they're all kind of leaning towards modern monetary theory. But when these numbers keep rolling in month after month, and there's no sign inflation's going south, even Janet Yellen, okay, who a month or two ago ruined her reputation by saying inflation would be 2% by the end of the year, right? She was legalizing marijuana and smoking it up. She now <laughs> has pulled back. She's pulled back. She, she, had to, uh, she had to disagree with Madam Saki. Was it yesterday or the day before? Saki says, this thing's going to be over. It's going to be temporary. <laughs> Yellen finally comes out and says, no, it's not. All right, so there's a dose of realism there, Jack Bruggen. Let's take a break. I'm going to take a break and bring you guys back. We'll have a little more time after this uh, to have some great fun about, um, about Jim LeCamp's uh, soft landing scenario. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Jack Bruggen, and we're here with Jim LeCamp, and we'll take a quick break and come right back. I'm Kudlow. Stay. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to The Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking to Jack Berusian, founder and chief economist for UCX, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jim LeCamp, senior VP investments at Morgan Stanley. Um, Jack, real quick, uh, the yield curve story, I, I know twos to tens, twos are 174, tens are 199, so that's pretty tight. But, you know, the economic model that was pioneered, I can't remember the fellow, he used to be at the New York Fed, he's now a professor at RPI University. Um, that was really the three-month T-bill and the 10-year note, and that's still a pretty wide spread, so I can't call that an, uh, a recession indicator. No, not yet, but, but pay attention to it. I think what you're doing is you're paying attention to the right, to the right spreads. Uh, you know, that, that three-month spread to the 10 year is important, but that two to 10, Larry, if that should invert, and, and I think we've all got to agree, uh, it's going to send a strong signal to the rest of the market. Mm -hmm. And if indeed you're right, and the Fed has got to be more aggressive than, than the market thinks, that's going to be disruptive for equity prices. I think we know that. Right. Uh, so all of that has got to be factored into our economic decisions here over the course of the next six months to eight months. And Jim McCamp, another question briefly. You know, I was talking to General Keene earlier in the show, and I'm not going to say he didn't say the Russians are losing, but he did say 
you know, and he has great military knowledge and so forth. The Russians have done so badly. The Red Army is so bad. They are not going to be able to take Kyiv, and they're not going to be able to take all of Ukraine. So it's not exactly that they've lost, but in fact, the Russians may lose Ukraine in the, in the eyes of the world. Now, is that a stock market event? Well, uh, first of all, I think you're right, and it goes to show you uh, what a government that has uh, had decades of corruption, uh, it goes to show you what happens. Um, they're, they're unprepared. Uh, they don't have apparently good leadership. And the mere fact that they're using terror-like techniques, hitting a maternity ward, hitting um, you know a home for the elderly, uh, those, those are the kind of techniques that terrorists use. And, um, and and insinuating that they could use chemical weapons and other things like that shows you that they don't feel like they're in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. And does it I, I don't necessarily think it's a stock market event because I don't think there will be an all clear sign. Uh, I think it's going to be more like a, a Vietnam unless there is a real and serious agreement uh, that allows them to, uh, de, uh, de-escalate this thing and get out of there elegantly. And I, I can't, in my mind, I can't get there. No, that's right. Um, I, You're right about that. You're absolutely right about that. It's, it's, it's a defeat in the sense that they couldn't win and that right. they miscalculated. And the world now knows how bad the Red Army is. But you're, you're right. There's, there's no clarity to it. By the way, the sanctions will remain in place for a long time. Whatever you think of them and whatever their impact is, the sanctions are going to be in place for a long time. All right, gentlemen, a lot of stuff. Appreciate it very much, Jack Berusian and Jim LeCamp. Hope you both come back soon. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to do some money and politics on the other side of the break with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Join us during the week, Fox Business, 4 p.m., 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. Name of the show is Kudlow. Please join us. If you can't join us, call up a nine-year-old to DBR it so you'll never miss a show. And you will see, live and in color, Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and author of Godzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Welcome back, kids. Liz Peake, remember that old Dionne Warwick song, What the World Needs Now is Love? So I'm paraphrasing. What the world needs now is an excess profits tax on <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That's oh what the world gosh. needs now, and that's what 10 or 12 Democrats are out there saying, and that's what Joe Biden warned everybody uh, <laughs> on Friday or Thursday. X, don't you dare get prices and have excess profits, right? We need that. Yeah, what the world I- needs now. I, you know, I just don't think Americans are that stupid. I think they look at the energy policies of this administration and they are aghast. The idea that we're not doing everything possible to ramp up U.S. oil and gas production, even as our diplomats are fanning out across the globe to beg uh, anti-American hostile regimes like <laughs> Venezuela and Iran for more oil, it is absolutely incredible. And yes, you can talk, you know, you can go back to Joe Biden's 
blaming meat processors, maiming, blaming this industry and that for inflation, and now, of course, it's energy companies. And Elizabeth Warren is right there clapping like a seal, hoping we get a windfall profits tax. <laughs> it is just beyond bizarre. I kind of loved he, it. it was, oh, my gosh. This is kind of like right on cue. Go, yeah. Liz Warren. Yes. <laughs> Excess Good. profits. Right. That's just really screw the oil and gas companies. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a winning message, Larry. I think Americans want to see some <laughs> constructive action taken to lower uh, the price of gasoline. I was just looking at a, a piece from an investor group who said every penny of increased gasoline prices is a billion and a half dollar tax on the American people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that if I can back that up, but I mean that's a pretty stunning number, right? Yeah, but Steve Moore, you know that this inflation problem is caused by Vladimir Putin. You know that. Hmm. President so, Biden told you know, us it, that. Madam Saki told us that with great emphasis. This is the Putin inflation. Biden has nothing to do with it, Steve. Yeah, the problem that I think the White House has right now, just in terms of their messaging, is it's like um, it's like that. Um, they, it's, it's, it's one day they love the oil and gas industry, and the next they hate it. You know, it's like... What day is this the week? Because on the, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, we're doing everything we can to increase oil and gas production, which obviously is a lie. And then they say, oh, by the way, we want to slap the, uh, the industry with a, with a new tax. So um, I, the problem they face, too, Larry, is I mentioned this on your TV show the other day. Even if Joe Biden said announced tomorrow, which he should, look, we're going to go all in on you know what Liz was talking. We're going to produce all the oil and gas and energy we can. The, the industry doesn't trust him. Yeah. They're not going to go out and they wouldn't believe they're it. Not gonna, they're <laughs> not going to. Yeah, they don't believe him because when you when you're the, a president who said I want to bankrupt the oil and gas industry, are they going to then go out and invest you know billions and billions of dollars in, in new rigs? So when when uh, when uh, Jim Psaki's out there saying, oh, we've got you know eight thousand rigs that are on drilling, well, that's because you're trying to screw them every time they drill. They drill. Yeah. yeah, it's true. You know, Liz and the. In the world tour of rogue, terrorist, America-hating, oil-producing countries like Iran and Venezuela, I came up with one that actually is friendly to us, and that's Alberta, Canada. (laughs) Now, we still have friendly relations with Canada, I think. And um, so when Saki said the other day that the Keystone Pipeline doesn't matter and all pipelines don't matter, because they just distribute oil. They don't actually produce oil. Yeah. And I was thinking, yeah, really. So if you're milking a cow and all you do is let the milk fall to the barn floor, that's what she's describing. Oh, wait a minute. You have to transport it to customers to help them. They don't understand that. I mean, that's really a sick thing. That You don't need pipelines because the pipelines don't produce oil. All they yeah. do is transport the oil. Now, that's just the stupidest darn thing I've ever heard. I mean, that's a new low. Yeah, well, I, I think, honestly, if you lined up 10 top Democrat and maybe even some Republican legislators and officials and asked them about the energy industry, you'd find some truly wackadoodle answers, uh, including that one that you're mentioning. But, for example, let's talk about a pipeline that is existing that is not full, and that's the Alieska pipeline. It is sitting there ready to transport oil from Alaska, where, by the way, there are billions of barrels of oil yet to be produced, and it's not full. It's not even close to being full. Why? Because there are 
tremendous reserves that have been discovered that are waiting for permits to basically produce that oil, because mm-hmm. once you discover oil, you also have to drill wells to produce it, and they're not coming out. I mean, it, it, the whole premise that this administration has not stepped on U.S. oil and gas production is a lie, as Steve said, uh, but it's complicated. And so, you know, the GOP just has to keep hammering home that we're going to Tehran instead of Texas. That is a very winning message. And moreover, it is true. Yeah, well, let, know, let me Steve, make one other quick point. Steve. Can I just add one thing to what Liz was just saying? So there's another component to this, which let's say you're a, you're a green. Let's say you think climate change is going to destroy the planet and we've got, you know, there's an urgency and there's an existential threat. I'm not there, but, you know, many people I respect are. So if you really care about climate change, the worst possible thing you can do is reduce American oil and gas. We have by far, Larry, by far the most uh, stringent environmental regulation. So when we... Stop producing oil and gas here and then get it from Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. You're doing so much damage to the to the environment. You're, you're actually yeah. increasing the amount of greenhouse gases. So as, as one of my friends, Tom Pyle, with the Institute for Energy Research, who's the world's expert on energy, said, the single thing we could do to reduce greenhouse gases is move all oil and gas production to the United States. You know, Cynthia so Lummis. We're doing the opposite. We're doing Senator- the opposite. Uh, Cynthia Lummis was on the show last Saturday, Senator Lummis from Wyoming, and she made that point. The United States produces the cleanest natural gas. Russia has very dirty natural gas. Exactly. And so we should export every ounce of LNG. Um, But, uh, Liz, I want to come back to this other matter. It's Vladimir Putin's inflation problem. Yeah, well... Yeah, again, I, I just don't think people are buying that, um, and, and and it's not true. I mean, I think someone has looked at, if you look at the numbers, it's about a, a dollar of Biden and 75 cents of Putin, if you want to get sort of technical. Uh, but, you know, That's I, good. I think, I think That's what's good. happened is over the last several months, uh, I mean, obviously the White House messaging, to use a horrible word, on inflation has been confusing. It has been deflecting. They have not yet really owned up to the idea that under their watch, inflation went from arguably nothing, one and a half percent or so, to basically now we're at eight, nine, ten percent. And that all happened before the war. I mean, it's not all about oil and gas. It's all about everything. It's about rents, because what is the Fed doing still buying mortgage-backed bonds as house prices go through the roof? I have no idea. And I have to say, I've not heard Jay Powell give really a good explanation for that. Food prices are up. Uh, You know, appliance prices are up. Yes, some of it is definitely bottlenecks at the ports and so forth, about which we have done, from what I can see, very little. Uh, But it is just you know, increased spending, too many people not working. I think probably at the end of the day, Larry, that's the most insidious mm-hmm. uh, negative impact on our economy right now. Mm-hmm. The fact that there are still so many bodies not working. And the Democrats, they're in, you know, I was looking today at sort of a series of Democrat proposals. Is there a single one that does not call for the federal government to subsidize Americans? I mean, it's sort of like, can't they come up with anything other than just handouts? Because that is, seems to be the entire kind of backbone of their energy, I mean, of their policy playbook, and it's really damaging right now. That's Joe Manchin's best, biggest and best point, Liz. And you know who else is making that point? Rick Perry. Rick Perry, I'm sorry. Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you're right. That's a, I mean, uh, Phil Graham started this uh, 
You want to you know, improve the economy, curb inflation, pause spending and welfare reform to restore workfare. Yeah. Those were the two biggest things. I mean, I would add Federal Reserve, but, you know, that's a big thing. And, and Steve, the other on – the, on the TV show this week, Rick Perry had a great one, you know, talking about uh, Liz's point about Iran and Venezuela and all these dictators and rogue states and terrorists that hate us. Um, Perry suggested that the White House uh, send a special envoy to Midland, Texas. to develop a peace treaty with the oil and gas industry. I just love that. I can't get that. And I said, you could have a junior special envoy go to Alberta, Alaska. I mean, they are our allies. In fact, even Mexico's our ally. We don't have have to go to Venezuela, which is, right, financed by Russia and the place is run by the Cuban uh, Secret Service. I mean, we don't have to do this. They're doing this. This is the craziest stuff I've ever seen. Let's take a quick break. Take a quick break. I want to talk about the latest Wall Street Journal poll, and I want to ask why Steve Moore is so much in favor of this um, omnibus spending bill that was just passed by the uh, Congress with earmarks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Much more to do with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're here with Liz Peek and Steve Moore, and I want to go to Steve Moore. $1.5 trillion omnibus spending bill, and, of course, it's not financed, except it will be financed by the Fed, but $8 billion some odd worth of earmarks, Steve Moore. (laughs) I thought we, and by the way, had a lot of, I think there were, 30 Republicans that voted against it, but, but that left almost 20 that voted in favor of it. I thought we'd killed earmarks. What happened here? Yeah, how did they come back? That's a great question. Um, by the way, the, the little the backstory of this bill is kind of interesting. It, it, it really describes why we call Washington the swamp. And it's that um, Richard Shelby, who is the chairman, the ranking Republican on the um, – on the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee, which does the spending. And I, by the way, I like, I, I've always liked Richard Shelby, but mm-hmm. he's retiring after, and between between him and uh, Pat Leahy, I think they've got about 100 years in, in Congress. They're both about 90 years old. And so this was a going away present to <laughs> Richard Shelby, you know? And I thought, why don't they just give him a gold watch or something? You know, for, and so, <laughs> a nice you know, Rolex for $30,000. <laughs> paying hundreds and billions of dollars as a going away present so that he can get, you know, all these programs in Alabama. It it is a disgrace. I think the one thing that could really, you know, hurt Republicans, because they're looking at a monster election in November, is if people just kind of throw up in their hands and say, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Democrats or Republicans. They're both, you know, pox on both of their houses. So I think Republicans have to become the anti-big government party. And boy, this bill is anything but that. Yeah, I mean, Liz, if, if, you, if you take as your baseline Newt Gingrich's big government socialism, what you have here is a conspiracy. I mean, you've got, and so, you know, you're talking about 8% inflation plus. Deficit spending is a big part of this inflation story. And here they go again. This bill is unfinanced. I didn't hear anybody yeah. talk about funding this bill. Funding it, mind you. 
bad enough what Steve just said, and all the roads in Alabama are going to be paved with gold. So yeah. I, agree, I agree with him. But, you know, nobody talked about financing this at a time when inflation is, is very high. You know, it, I think it's really awful. It's just awful governance. And, it, I mean, among other insults to the American taxpayers, the fact that it's a 2,700-page bill that was delivered hours before they were supposed to vote on it, nobody has really read the thing. I've not yet been able to find, maybe Steve has, uh, the actual bill so that you could actually go through it and look at what's in there. Uh, this is offensive. It's irresponsible. But, Larry, we're not surprised. And to Steve's point, at some point, unfortunately, Republicans do not do enough to push back on this stuff. Now, mm-hmm. you know, they are forever scarred by being uh, chastised for shutting down the government. How many years ago is that? I can't remember. But the main issue here seemed to be an absolute aversion and terror about shutting down the government and the fact that the GOP might be held accountable for that. So there is no backbone. There's no um, willingness to really kind of uh, bring the you know public opinion down on your head. And to some degree, in an election year, I get that, because right now, as Steve said, this could be a monster election for Republicans. Why infuriate voters by going out and saying, no, we're not going to pass this bill. We're going to shut down, I don't know, the Vietnam War Memorial or something. Uh, you know, is that's going to ruin everybody's day and we'll be blamed. But really, this this reeks. And the fact that they brought back earmarks uh, and that some of these earmarks are such completely idiotic purposes. You know, I don't think they'll last, because I think if we get a Republican Congress, maybe, you know, voters will really kind of make their voice heard and say, no, we don't like this. We don't like all this special favoritism. But I, say, I wouldn't count on it. I'd say that's a maybe. I'd yeah, I know. I agree with you. The thing is, though, Stephen, no, nobody ever raised the issue of pay-fors. Yeah. So when it was Biden's $2 trillion dollars, uh, a year ago, or the BBB, which would have been about $5 trillion CBO score, the, you know, pay-fors, the lack of pay-fors was a big issue, a very big issue. Like Joe Manchin stood on that issue, you know, as did a lot of Republicans. So the pay-fors, the Federal Reserve, buying the bonds, printing more money, and throwing more cash into the economy. So this bill, $1.5 trillion, I know the shiny object was Ukraine, uh, 13 or 14 billion, and I'm personally fine with that. But why they need to talk about pay-fors? This is why I'm so pessimistic about inflation. This will not end well in Biden's Washington, Steve Moore. This inflation, which is contributed to by deficit spending and monetary uh, expansion and cutting off the supply of oil and gas when we need it most, this will not end well, kids. I'm telling you. I agree. Yeah, there was one piece of interesting development with this bill, which is the Republicans did make one valiant stand where they said, look, if you want, I think they wanted $20 billion more for COVID, even though COVID is basically Mm. gone. And the Republicans quite correctly said to the Democrats, "Okay, you know, you've got $100 billion from the $4 trillion we've already spent on COVID that you haven't spent. You know, you've got to take this $20 billion from, from that money or find other offsets. And the Democrats were infuriated that Republicans should, would, you know, require them to pay for something. And so after they made this big point about, oh, all these people are going to die if we don't get, you know, this extra $20 billion for COVID treatments, 
the Democrats decided, oh, what, you know what, we'll kill this because we can't find anything else in the budget. Out of a $6 trillion budget, they couldn't find, you know, $20 billion. And, you know, so now, I mean, and they just, it's, it's so outrageous. We have increased our budget, folks, from, I think it was like $4 trillion before COVID. And now we're up to like seven trillion, and they—we should be cutting every government program by about ten percent right now, and they're doing just the opposite. Let's pick what. Uh, this is an honest question. What's the most expensive Rolex watch? Do you think there is? Ha! I have no idea. I'm so, sure there's one for over a hundred grand. Yeah. But so say, say right. So say they're a hundred grand. So if you given Shelby a hundred <laughs> grand Rolex watch, and you've given. Uh, 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 Leahy, a hundred. So that would be two hundred grand worth of Rolex watches for retirement, and you, you would have saved one point four trillion dollars. It yeah, would have been really. a good swap, and the public might have applauded their service. Think it, of that. Is, this is a whole new approach to budgeting and fiscal policy. I, I agree. And remember that all these cities and states that got all that money out of the American Rescue Plan, $350 billion, there's so much money floating around. Right. I have no idea where it's gone. And they by the way, none is anyone else. They can't spend it. I know that. The Maya McGinnis Group keeps saying this $800 billion was unspent. Nobody yeah. knows where that money went. It's extraordinary. But we're fighting and Okay. And by the way, I wish someone – does anyone even know what the money – I'm for the money going to Ukraine too, but I don't know what it's going for. I mean, has anyone right. actually described that? Honestly, it's as though they don't think taxpayers deserve to know. Uh, and the whole open the books uh, kind of program and, and movement, I don't know what ever happened to that. I mean, I, the books are not open. They're really quite closed, it seems to me. Yeah, we had uh – Bill Haggerty was on Senator Haggerty, so he's on the Senate Appropriations Committee. And it was the day after the House passed the bill, and I asked him, I didn't even know he was on appropriations, and he said they had no committee votes, no hearings yeah. whatsoever, and no documents. He didn't have, he said, I hear it's, it's 3,000 pages, but there's no document. And then the next day they passed it in the Senate. I mean, come yeah. on. That's, That's irresponsible, so Larry. If if you had a corporation and your budget guy came in and and basically f- presented that to the CEO and uh, the board was supposed to pass it without any documentation, you'd be fired instantly. Yes. I mean, it is – we we don't expect enough of our legislators. We don't even ask much of our legislators. I mean, Americans have become so rollover and let it happen – uh, minded that, you know, to Steve's point, people are just shrugging their shoulders. It's like today there was an article in the journal about Biden's rule on contractors and the fact oh, that they're yes. going to change the contractor rules yes. to make every single project more expensive. This from a president who keeps telling us he's doing everything to bring costs down. For unionization. Doing, Steve yeah, Moore. I mean, it's are all about there? paying off big labor, paying yeah. off this group and that group. It is you know, there is just sort of essential corruption in our government, and I hate to sound negative about it, but right now I really feel negative about it. This was a sham and, and a disgrace. Steve Moore, this is Davis Bacon to the third power. That's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, you know, I just want to add one other point. You know, the left has got a, got a big campaign right now to get people to trust 
government, you know, more. This is the idea. You know, we have to trust our institutions and authorities. But I'm really? thinking, God, in the last two years, everything they said about COVID was wrong. You know, they're passing these massive spending bills. The public is just so disgusted. How? Why would anyone trust government to do anything right now, uh, given the way that Congress and the administration have acted? So uh, it's it's a uh, and, and I'm going to say one other quick thing because. I'm just really worried, Larry. I don't know if you are about a kind of crash landing with this economy right now, because when you see this kind of inflation, Mm -hmm. it is going to put a huge, huge dent in the incomes, Mm -hmm. real incomes and purchasing power of people. And uh, our friend Larry Lindsay says now there's a 50-50 chance of Mm -hmm. a of a recession in the next few months. I wonder where are you you on that? When you, I think this will not end well. Me too. Badly. You know, Liz, down through the years, Wall Street always talks about a soft landing, but never, never happens. sees one. Never, never happens, sees one. Yeah. And that is a big problem. Anyway, Liz Peak, Steve Moore, love, love, terrific stuff, folks. Steve Moore, you better campaign against these earmarks. Folks, <laughs> I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us on Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, and we'll be back next weekend on the radio. 